Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hi there, welcome back. I've got a good one for you today. Andy Bertera from New England Biolabs is back for the second time to talk about how culture drives marketing tactics. We also get into data and AI a little bit and how you balance those with your culture. Before we start, though, I have a question for you. Do your product managers spend a lot of time on the phone answering questions from your sales team as they drive between customer sites? If that's the case, a secure internal podcast might make everyone happier. And with an internal podcast, you can find out who's paying attention and what content they find most useful. If you want to know more, hit me up on my contact page at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Andy Bertera. My guest today is a longtime friend of the podcast, making a second appearance. Andy Bertera is the executive director of marketing and sales at New England Biolabs. Andy, welcome back to Life Science Marketing Radio. My absolute pleasure, Chris. Uh, I'm, uh, as I said to you earlier, it's great to see Life Science Radio back up and running on uh, on the airwaves, and uh, excited to have a second opportunity to discuss uh, some other topics with you. Yeah. So the topic today is corporate culture and how that affects how you market to your customers. So I think the logical place to start, and maybe if you want to go back farther than this, you let me know, but I'd say what it describe the culture at New England Biolabs since that's the world you're living in. Sure. Well, maybe it'd be helpful. Maybe if I sort of help define what company culture actually is. Um, yeah. I'm sure it's a term that uh, you know all of your listeners, yourself included, obviously have heard and uh, probably you know have a good understanding of. But uh, maybe just to ground everyone, you know, a company's culture is really the beliefs or behaviors that um, you know determine how the company's employees interact, both within that company as well as uh, outside of the company, and most importantly with their customers. I think unlike uh, a sort of mission statement or a vision statement, a culture is not always uh, a statement that's written down. It's something that uh, is perhaps more implied and uh, evolves and develops, if you like, over time. I think one of the other important aspects of it is it, it basically is it, 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 it's the fit, if you like, that uh, exists between an employee's values and the company's values. And if you get that fit right, then that's why you know your employees stay with your company for a long time. And in the case of NEB, New England Biolabs, uh, I think that is definitely the case. You know, our tenure of uh, individuals tends to be, you know, on the high side relative to, uh, you know, a high-tech industry being over 10 years. And I think that is because of that fit with the company's values, with the uh, uh, individual's values and the culture that sort of fits them together. NEB's uh, sort of values and its culture really sort of uh, gear around three words, passion, humility, and uh, being genuine. So I guess that's four words, but uh, uh, passion uh, in our case is really passion for science. New England Biolabs, uh, if listeners are not familiar to, we are a biotechnology company, one of the uh, first biotechnology companies to actually be founded. We're uh, over 45 years old now. Uh, as a consequence of that, you know, our customers are uh, scientists and most of our employees are scientists. So putting science first and science that, that we think about 
in almost every decision we make is important. And in the commercial world, in the world that I live in, uh, New England Biolabs, that uh, science is obviously our customers' science and, uh, and the, work, the good work that they do. The second one is humility, uh, which is an odd word to actually use, and particularly the head of marketing to actually use. And this really uh, is the essence of the company from the perspective of, you know, we could very much, you know, blow our own trumpet and uh, talk about all the good work we do uh, and the like, but we much rather our customers do our talking. So uh, for us, a customer publishing a great breakthrough in science uh, that happens to use our products is the best way for us to actually market. And that, that's important from that point of view. And the last one, being genuine, is really about uh, how we interact with ourselves uh, internally as well as with our customers. In that, you know, it's the old adage of you like to treat others as you treat uh, uh, them. So, you know, a good example if a customer rings us up and they have a technical question. We don't care whether they're actually using our product or not. You know, if they've got a technical and a scientific problem, we will try and help them because that's the right thing to do because they're, you know, human uh, in need of, uh, in this case, technical support. And our belief is if we help them with that problem, then maybe one day they'll come back and use our product, remembering that sort of support we get. So our values, passion, humility, and being genuine really sort of drive the uh, uh, and form the foundation of the culture of the company. Yeah, so... I mean, the, the passion for science is, is pretty clear. What struck me is that the humility part, I guess, yeah, you could consider it odd in a world where, yeah, a lot of companies are tooting their, their own horn. You know, it is it's kind of the essence of marketing to do it, to serve your customer. And, um, and when you talk about serving people that are not necessarily your customers, I mean, what company wouldn't want to have that human interaction as a marketing touch point. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. we all struggle to get people on the phone. So when they call you up with a problem, you can't hang up on them when they're not using your product. Yes. No. No, totally right. You're never going to get a better chance. Yeah. And the, and the thing about science, of course, is, uh, you know, technology moves. So uh, people have different areas of science or different technologies they're going to be using over time. And, um, you know, so, you know, just because they're not using your product today doesn't mean they're not going to use it in the future as that technology trend actually changes. Yeah. So my next question was about how, you know, what aspects of the company culture affects how you market to customers. That's sort of what you just talked about. But if you want to expand on that. <clears throat> sure. Um, well, maybe it comes back to our value proposition, if you like. So I described the, the culture and the, the values that sort of form a part of that culture. The value proposition, and if uh, any of the listeners are not familiar with the term value proposition, it is the, the key thing that differentiates you from your uh, competition. It's the one thing that your customers uh, like you for, if you like. And in New England Bell Lab's case, that is actually customer intimacy. Customer intimacy is uh, described as the ultimate customer-centric business model, how you sort of build uh, long-term relationships with customers. The more classical definition uh, is that you build relationships only with the most valuable and profitable and profitable customers. But we cross out those last parts in terms of the most valuable and profitable customers because we really want to have an intimate relationship with all our customers. And, and that might be simple to say, but the reason I say that is that, uh, uh, and I hate to choose uh, a university, so I won't say a particular name, but you could have a researcher in a, a a 
less well-funded uh, lab in some uh, university, they make a breakthrough. And uh, that breakthrough means that uh, they set up a, a biotech startup. And then that biotech startup ends up being, you know, uh, purchased by a pharmaceutical company. And if you've had a good relationship with that researcher, hopefully they're using their products and their products, uh, those same products then end up being used in the development or uh, perhaps part of that uh, drug manufacture. And you can't guess that because you don't know when these uh, breakthroughs are going to actually come. So being in, being um, intimate with all customers, regardless of their status, is important. But this, this customer intimacy uh, sort of model then drives your thinking of how you actually uh, market and commercialize uh, products. You know, you really do put your customers and people before short-term profits. You know, you again, that long-term relationship. You listen to your customers to understand them more than you do to actually sell to them. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, the selling almost comes as, a, as an output of that uh, that listening. And you take a, a, a relational rather than a rational approach. Really, sort of do by doing this, build relationships for the long term. And when you come to a lot of the tactics that NEB deploys as part of his marketing activities, they all sort of fall under that uh, sort of umbrella. So I'll maybe just give you one example um, uh, to sort of bring that to life. And that would be our web tools. So on our website, we have, uh, I think it's over 20 different tools that customers can actually use. These are tools that in some cases help with the selection of a product for a certain experiment, but also help to use that uh, uh, that product or uh, help to just you know understand uh, the basis of some aspect of science. But with all of these tools, we made a conscious decision not to put the buy now button on them because we really want to differentiate between supporting them scientifically and selling to them. We believe, and, and if you look at our, our website stats, you know, uh, it's something like a quarter of all visitors use uh, those tools. And although some of the tools, as I mentioned, relate to our products, many don't. But that relationship of supporting them in science is really thinking about the long term, supporting them as an individual scientist versus a customer. And as I said, the uh, the purchases will come along later because of that relationship we build with them based on that tool. So I'm thinking about that and, and it makes, makes complete sense. And we're going to get into some data here in a second. I mean, we're going to talk about how you use data. So I'm curious because if I'm using the tool, maybe I'm not so offended by the buy now button, I, but I completely understand why you wouldn't want that. I mean, it, it's, it sends a message. And so maybe when we get to the data, I'm curious if you know or could know that or, or could test, you know, the number of people that leave the tool and then go to the product page and could you save them a step and would it matter? I, yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, good question. I mean, I mean, a lot of the tools in reality that they're, they're either used for planning experiment, which could potentially be pre-purchase, but a lot of them are actually post-purchase. You know, so you bought the product, or you've, you you're using the product, and you need to help uh, interpret the data from it. Uh, to answer your question about, you know, can we connect the dots between, you know, somebody using the tool and somebody purchasing on the website? In some cases, the answer is yes, but majority, unfortunately, is not. And that's one of the sort of challenges, I guess, of the part of the life sciences that we work in, in that uh, we can track researchers who, you know, downloading papers, reading uh, certain uh, content on our websites, whatever it might be. Uh, they get very interested, maybe they even, or, you know, request a sample of a product uh, on 
the website. But if they like that sample, what they then tend to do is pass an order over to the lab manager or uh, maybe even a purchasing agent. And if that lab manager or purchasing agent doesn't mention the researcher's name in the order, then we can't connect the dots. All we know is let's say Dr. Smith at uh, University X uh, has a strong interest in this product and sampled it and there was an order from that university but was it Dr. X, Dr. Y, Dr. Z or whoever we don't know you know so that's a that's a just a you know a challenge that unfortunately exists in the life sciences. Sure and exactly as you mentioned I mean I'm I was thinking my own experience in the lab if I'm using the tool I probably already have the product. Right. (laughs) It's probably at the moment I I'm about to do the thing and I go, oh yeah, how is that done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we joke, we joke it's, uh, um, you know, obviously, you know, customer journeys are, are very, very important in marketing and trying, every, every marketer is trying to understand the best way to understand what a customer's journey is. But, you know, there's one side in a researcher in the lab who says, well, what is the customer buying journey? And it said, oh, I'm going to the freezer. Oh, the tube's empty. Let me have a look what the catalog number is. And I reorder it, you know, um, because, (laughs) you know, because, you know, you tend to use what you've used before. You know, it worked. And that reliability aspect, uh, which, you know, obviously comes a lot from use of that product and seeing in publications, both yours and others, uh, is what drives that uh, decision. But, you know, that's not really a classical uh, customer buying journey as uh, you would describe it in most uh, internet uh, companies, you know, so. Exactly. So I'm thinking about maybe companies that have a more short-term focus, which is a lot of public companies. And I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't do the same customer serving and you you have built that reputation and you kind of own that space what are your thoughts on that i mean it just takes you you just have to wait longer to build that up i mean also you have the advantage of a 40-year history mm-hmm. yeah i mean i mean you're totally right i mean um you know the customer intimacy model, uh, at least in theory, is is something that uh, any company could actually try and go down that path or mimic, if you like. Uh, you know, first and foremost, your products have to work. You know, otherwise, all the other stuff doesn't really matter. And I think that that's that helps NEB over time, or has helped NEB over time to really build that reputation of uh, you know high quality products that uh, have good technical support that work every time. Once you've got that and you build over time, then you have that repeat sale and then the uh, the other aspects of supporting them scientifically through the web tools that I mentioned, through our uh, catalog and the, the reference guide in the back of the catalog and things, you know, uh, things that we can build on. So I think, you know, to answer your question, I think it, there is there is a time element to it that uh, means you have to actually, you know, play the long, the long game, but it doesn't mean it's not copyable. Right. But on the flip side, now as you mentioned that, I'm thinking in the other direction, I've, I've worked at some shorter term focused companies and the time pressure, for example, to generate leads or do things like that soaks up the time for which you could have been developing the tools that you would use in a longer term. Yeah. Strategy. No, so, fair point. Fair point. I mean, so I mean, I think we said that. Resource challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we are private. So uh, we don't have the uh, quarterly pressures that perhaps a public company has, you know, to uh, generate those earnings and report those earnings against what the expectations are. Doesn't mean we don't have financial targets. And that's obviously important. And it doesn't mean that we don't do lead generation activities and to try to obviously uh, achieve our goals through. Uh, uh, 
selling new products or trying to gain share with existing products. Uh, it's just we we don't have to go to the customer at the end of every quarter and say, any chance you could uh, buy this uh, a week earlier than you, you were planning to, um, you know, because we, we can think slightly longer term. You know? Yeah, exactly. So uh, you are a apparently self-described data geek. And digital must play a role in this customer experience, but it also has to play a role in your ability to serve customers better by understanding their wants and needs. So Mm -hmm. how does, how do you use that data? Is, is this the time to ask you about artificial intelligence? Yeah, I can certainly. Yeah, I'm happy to try. I mean, uh, so yes, I uh, definitely would describe myself as a data geek. I uh, find data very powerful if you can interpret it, of course. And I do believe that for companies of the size of NEB, and you know, we're a small to medium-sized company relative to uh, some of the larger companies that we compete with in the industry that using data correctly can level the playing field in terms of uh, becoming more efficient and hopefully more effective with our uh, marketing activities. To do that and to personalize uh, our marketing approaches, we are on a journey to uh, ensure that we gather data appropriately, and I say appropriately relative to you know privacy uh, laws and concerns um, you know, about our customers and use that data then to hopefully help provide them tools that uh, can further you know their own sort of goals and objectives so i go back to my comments about thinking about a long-term relationship with customers and the culture of NEB to support them you know from a scientific perspective first the data we're trying to gather about customers is really trying to do that so you know if a customer is a uh, I don't know cancer biologist and uh, maybe they're using techniques like next generation sequencing and we know that then that makes sense uh, to you know, when they're on our website or when we're actually uh, supporting them, it doesn't make sense to talk about, um, I don't know, uh, uh, a yeast protein expression product or a glycobiology product, perhaps, if we know that, you know, their, their main focus in is next generation sequencing. We can serve content. We can actually support them more effectively around those uh, uh, topics by knowing what they do. Our approach to data, you know, and, and this is, you know, work in progress, I'll be the first to admit that, and a work in progress that'll probably last for a long time, is really how can we combine internal data with external data? Internal data being things like, obviously, you know, what, what products are customers buying from you, how they actually are interacting with your marketing assets, whether that's your website, uh, email, interactions with the sales uh, uh, team, with uh, field application or instrumentation specialists or what have you, with external data, which in an academic world could be publications it could be funding the more commercial world could be you know what um you know what their linkedin profile says or what have you and i think by combining this internal and external data allows you to uh you know surface uh, content or surface uh, support uh, for that customer in a more effective and personalized manner yeah that's interesting so there must be some way to pull all that data together in one place. So I'm not imagining that a customer service representative or in your company, anybody who's involved with the product could be the person on the phone is pulling up a LinkedIn profile while they're talking to that person on the phone. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, about this, right. You, no. Mm-hmm. And you've scraped some of their publication data into their profile, I'm imagining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, we're, we're a 
uh, salesforce.com uh, shop in terms of our CRM and our marketing automation. So that is our sort of central hub that we use for uh, collating this information. And as I say, it's a work in progress, but uh, if I use um, uh, publications as the external data example, you know, one of the benefits of having uh, a large number of customers in the uh, academic world is, you know, one of their goals is to publish information. And when they publish that information, obviously uh, they are telling you what they're using with your product. So, you know, if I go back to my fictitious example, you know, I might know a customer's buying our uh, next generation sequencing products, but based on the papers they're publishing, I now know that they're a researcher looking at, say, pancreatic cancer. And uh, that allows me to connect the dots as to, you know, what sort of support they might need scientifically first, but then also on the commercial world, what are the products they might not be buying from us that uh, may help them with their research that I could surface to them, you know, either through email or on the website or what have you. And, you know, as we build up that profile externally and internally, we're not quite there uh, today, but, uh, you know, to go back to your example, if, if, it's a, if they ring technical support, then, you know, the technical support person, you know, if the customer reveals who they are, then they can actually see that information, you know, on their screen as they're answering the call or, or uh, answering an email. And again, it allows them to be more intelligent and hopefully answer their question faster and more uh, productively than having to go back and can you give me more information as to what you're doing. How does AI artificial intelligence come into this? Are, are you looking for predictors or are there, I mean, you run some filters to say, for example, we want to grow this product. Who should we uh -huh. market it to? I, I, I'm just not aware of all of Salesforce, honestly, any of Salesforce's yeah. capabilities. Yeah, and I'm... <laughs> Uh, so I'm not going to, I want I mean, I, I brought that up as just, just so, um, you know, that's what we're using today. I mean, as it relates to artificial intelligence, then this is something that uh, in terms of the data we're describing, we're not doing today yet. But uh, we believe as we actually curate and enhance the integrity of our data, then we will be able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence type of uh, capabilities to surface both sales opportunities in the in the fashion that you actually highlighted. If you start to see, I don't know, a new PI starting to publish in a certain area and you know that that uh, PI is not using your products or, or perhaps comes to your website and starts searching around and, and still isn't using your or uh, uh, products, you can connect the dots and either, you know, market to them or it's a lead for the sales organization, you know, to actually follow up with that customer and in a, a non-creepy way, let's say, um, provide them with information that may help them to make a decision whether they want to buy your product or not or whether they just need some support to further their scientific uh, uh, sort of activities. So that's that's really, I think, the, the direction that we're hoping to go in by cleaning up uh, our data and enhancing it through the sort of different uh, ways that I mentioned. Well, let me, let me stop there just to see if that answered your question. Yeah, it did. Uh, I that absolutely answered my question. I was going to say, I was going to bring it back to the the beginning and your culture about being, you know, humble and, and genuine. And so I don't know if you listened to my interview on the San Diego Biotech Network with Eric Topol a couple weeks ago. I haven't yet. I saw it uh, posted uh, when it came out and it's on my, on my list too. But, but this is a topic that's, that's fascinating to me beyond marketing and science. And so that interview was all, he's written a book about how he hopes that artificial intelligence 
will change the doctor-patient relationship. Uh And the short story is that doctors don't spend as much time with their patients as they used to. They sit in front of a computer and take notes while they're asking questions, and then they move on. Uh And that's the rough way to put it. Uh And he's hoping that automated note-taking will allow them to actually make eye contact with their patients and actually listen, which has been shown to improve outcomes. Uh I just think about that in the broader context of our world where, you know, we're getting better at digital and, but now we've got our face in a screen all day. And so your company might be, or you might be the person to ask about balancing that digital human <laughs> spectrum and, and how you make sure that you never lose that human touch while you're implementing all these tools that are helping, hopefully, I mean, I'm sure, both the customer and your business. No, you're totally right. I mean, the, uh, the um, you know, the balance between uh, going all digital and ensuring that you have that human touch point uh, to us is, is key. And our sort of um, value proposition around customer intimacy means that we will never not have a human uh, touch point. We, we have online chat, for example, on uh, for our customer service. And we've talked about, you know, the, the potential to use bots and things like that, which would be perfectly uh, achievable to actually do for some of the simpler questions like, you know, where's my order and things like that. But we felt that at least at the moment, it's not the right time or the technology is not, not there to keep that human touch point because I'm sure you've experienced it yourself. You, you know, I, I always find it comical with, uh, and I won't mention any names, but some of the some of the sort of um, uh, companies you ring up and you know you're talking to a bot and they're pretending to type, you know, and you're this false <laughs> type in the back. And I'm thinking, why do you, why, why, why is, do they not think it's obvious that, uh, you know, you're talking to uh, a, a robot here and therefore the type sound is just uh, fake, um, you know, but I think it's, you know, for us, we want to keep that that touch point. So for us, I think that the key is that um, we would always prefer to have uh, a human to human interaction, whether it's customer service, technical support, uh, sales and marketing activities, or what have you, because that truly, you know, is, is how you can build that, that long-term relationship. But to scale from, if I'm talking about the selfish perspective internally, you know, you, you know, we're not a large organization and to scale the interactions and to scale the level of support we want to give to our customers, we have to use, you know, automated systems, whether that's the, the web tool example that I started with or trying to actually collect more data about our customers so we can service them better through uh, AI and machine, machine learning aspects. Um, and ultimately, the key is how you actually forge and and bring the two items together so that your human interactions are more efficient and more effective by using the data that uh, and the the automation that can actually help an individual to uh, um, uh, move those relationships along faster. Your last statement perfectly answered the question as I had it written in my notes. That was was beautiful. So is there anything else I need to know about AI or things that you think are exciting? I mean, we're at the limits of my knowledge already. So anything you tell me is going to be new. I'm not not an expert either. Um, You know, like yourself, I find the whole topic uh, fascinating. And, you know, uh, I don't see it to be honest with you, was uh, a scary uh, from a from a point of view of, uh, you know, salespeople are going to disappear tomorrow. I think the two can work hand in hand and actually, you know, advance together. I mean, this is not perhaps AI in the 
concept in a, in a concept that we've described here, but we have been playing with uh, developing um, a support tool through uh, at the Amazon Alexa device. And that's been an interesting exercise. So literally, you know, I'm sure. Uh, yourself and all of the listeners uh, familiar with the Amazon Alexa, but instead of asking Alexa to, I don't know, what's the news of the day or the joke of the day or to turn on the lights in the living room, in our case, you can ask Alexa, what's the uh, cut site of uh, Echo R1 or what buffer do I use for Echo R1? Even what is the protocol that I should be using for this double digest, etc. And the feedback overall has been positive. It's an interesting and different way for customers to and researchers to interact with uh, NEB for technical uh, uh, support. But as with Alexa, you know, some people love it, some people hate it because it's listening into every conversation they have. Uh, right. um, you know, so it's no different uh, from that. But what, what we're exploring it with is to really say, can we get another data point on our customers to answer the question, how do they like to learn? As you know, there's different types of, of way people learn. You know, some people are, uh, you know, audible learners. They like to listen. And hopefully lots of people listen to the podcast fall into that category. You know, other people are more visual learners. They like to uh, see things. And other people are more sort of tactile in terms of touch and feel. And the question we're asking is, is a voice activated or voice supported uh, tool another way for certain individuals who prefer to learn and, and interact with a company that way, a way that we can interact with them more effectively? If some people don't like it, there's still the website, there's still the telephone, there's still even the fax machine. I think uh, we can, <laughs> if anybody sends faxes anymore. <laughs> I'm going to encourage every listener who just heard that to send you a fax and tell them, tell Andy that you heard it on my show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we still get, it's funny. We, we still get, uh, we still get fax orders. We don't get uh, any technical inquiries anymore that I'm aware of, I just say, but we still do get some orders by fax. Which, well, that'd uh, be a nice little metric on yeah. my audience. Yep. All right. We'll find out uh, an age demographic and a, uh, a, a technology phobia uh, demographic. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Andy Bertera, this has been fabulous as always. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your insights with us. Uh, my pleasure, Chris. It's uh, always great to talk to you and uh, great to uh, talk about some of the trends that we're seeing in uh, the life science marketing world that uh, very often come from uh, other industries, but we can uh, steal them with pride, let's say, uh, for our own industry and uh, uh, modify them for our customers. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Good to talk. All right. If corporate culture is something you care a lot about, I did another episode with Sheila Gudrathi, the CEO of Gossamer Bio. You can find that interview on The Buzz. That's the podcast of the San Diego Biotechnology Network, and that's available wherever you get your podcasts, just like this one. That's all for this week. Please tell two colleagues about the podcast. I thank you, and I think they will too. Bye-bye.